This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Today is Tu B'Cheshvan, the 15th day of the month of Mar Cheshvan. Today is actually the day that uh, the Adon Matityahu, Ben Yochanan Chashmonai, the father of the Maccabim, left our world. Uh, in fact, I'm broadcasting this podcast from the very mountain. I actually live on the mountain where Matityahu left our world. This was the partisan camp of the Maccabee underground in the hills of Gofna. And from my perspective, it's a great time to start getting into the headspace of Hanukkah, which comes, you know, roughly uh, a month and 10 days later. I think uh, between the 15th of Cheshvan and the 25th of Kislev, I see that as a window of time where we can be learning the books of Maccabees 1 and 2, or at the very least, go get yourself a copy of My Glorious Brothers by Howard Fast and read that. Uh, but really to familiarize ourselves with the story, uh, the story of the Hashmonaim, the story of the 26-year guerrilla war to free our country from foreign rule, and uh, also to understand their legacy and what they were fighting for and how that pertains to us today in our chapter of Jewish history. Uh, but I also think of uh, just this connection, you know, the fact that today is the day that uh, one of our ancient heroes uh, left our world and that I'm actually living and broadcasting this podcast from the very mountain where he died. I think that says something about our connection to our land and connection to our ancestors. And that's really what this program is going to be about. This question of Jewish indigeneity, this idea of the Jewish people being indigenous to the land of Israel, how that's used, how that's employed, how that's weaponized in some cases politically, uh, and how that's critiqued uh, by those who either don't see us as indigenous to this land or don't like the way that indigeneity claim is being used uh, and the ramifications of that. So I've asked a good friend and longtime student, Shai Herschel, to come on the program. Uh, Shai has been involved with us for roughly seven years, starting with our Atid Student Leadership Program uh, back in the last Shemitah year. And uh, he's been an activist at York University in Toronto for the last two years and is now himself a Jewish educator in the Toronto area, waiting to make Aliyah. Shai, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. When you were on campus, when you were at York University, uh, I imagine that this conversation came up quite a bit, this idea of Jews being indigenous to the land of Israel or this idea of Jews needing to decolonize or Jews being colonized, needing to decolonize. What were your experiences on campus trying to have this conversation with people both in the Jewish community, the pro-Israel community, and also uh, the broader activist community, especially in pro-Palestinian spaces? Yeah, I mean, first of all, when I when I came to Canada uh, seven years ago from, from the Atid program, um, I was really excited to talk about Jewish indigeneity, and I was laughed out of every pro-Israel room I went into. It was it was just such a crazy concept for most of the Jewish world at that time, at least the pro-Israel mainstream activist community. But about a, a couple of years later, there were Jewish organizations that were, you know, showing this new idea that they found, which is that we could be more successful if we uh, talked about Jewish indigeneity. It was sort of uh, got you 
rather than something to aspire towards or rather than actually changing anything about us. Uh, it was sort of just a, a better way of owning the left, so to speak. Um, but on campus, the, the truth was, uh, until those organizations became more prominent in the discourse, um, I was very successful in the activist community uh, talking about Jewish indigeneity because I think it, it came with like a full decolonization and, and it wasn't, you know, it was obvious I wasn't using buzzwords uh, to win them over or to trick them or beat them or whatever that may look like. Right. So when you finished our program in Jerusalem, you went back to Toronto, you went to York University, and you began trying to speak about Jewish indigeneity, and you had no success in pro-Israel spaces. They couldn't deal with the concept, but in the activist community and in pro-Palestinian spaces, it actually resonated with people and it opened doors and people understood that it wasn't just like a Hasbara talking point. It was actually genuine. It was coming from a real place and that that was actually disrupted, if I understood you correctly, by the pro-Israel community suddenly adopting indigenous language as a way to like make Israel's claim better. Like they ruined it, so to speak. 100%, it's, it's reverse now of what it was. Right, that's actually my experience as well. You know, I've been talking about Jewish indigeneity probably for roughly 15, 16 years. The broader pro-Israel community was very close to this idea initially. I would also say that, at least for me personally, even before I understood the language, it's what I felt. Like for me, moving to Israel, making Aliyah, embracing mitzvot, a halachic lifestyle, a Hebraizing not only my name, but actually my name structure, all of these were acts of decolonization. Uh, even if I didn't understand that language at the time, I was definitely experiencing them that way. I definitely self-identified as part of an ancient people from the land of Israel that was unjustly displaced, disconnected from our identity in many ways, not just our land. And I saw the process I was going through as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 22-year-old as uh, an act of decolonization. And I definitely related to the land of Israel, you know, from a Jewish perspective, this is our soulmate. And I think what I like about the indigeneity framework, what I like about the word indigenous, it's a good English word to describe the relationship the Jewish people have always understood ourselves as having with this land. So for me, when I started to understand this language and understand these concepts, I was able to apply, not only able to apply them, but in such a way that I could express what I had been until then feeling in, in such a way that people could actually hear and it could resonate with, with others. And like you said, it was really resonating with, with people who were not pro-Israel, people who were generally hostile to Israel, you know, in the Palestinian community and in pro-Palestinian spaces, it was really opening doors uh, and giving me the ability to tell our people's story, I, you know, just like you said, and it's ironic that as soon as the pro-Israel community began to adopt this language, you know, they did it in such a shallow, cynical, utilitarian way that suddenly it became so much more difficult to show people that I was actually genuine, that I actually, you know, when I talk about Jewish indigeneity or Jewish decolonization, I, I mean something very concrete and very deep and very consistent. And it's not just an argument for why, you know, we're right and Palestinians are wrong. Yeah, there, there's an irony for sure, because I think that 
the, the Zionist movement on some level was decolonizing and definitely there's sort of a, a soul of decolonization, but obviously not the language of decolonization. Um, and now that we've used the language, I think we lost the soul a little bit and we're sort of just uh, thriving on the old talking points that we picked up in the diaspora, especially um, the word indigenous. Right. I, I would argue it's a little more complicated than that in terms of Zionism. I, I would say that Zionism, you know, the Jewish people are, of course, unique in history. Uh, we're the only people I know of that was destroyed and dispersed that actually managed to come home nearly 2000 years later and reunite and take possession of the land we were displaced from. So in a sense, we are an indigenous people in that we're from this land. We're certainly indigenous in the way we can say a plant is indigenous, but it's also complicated in that the Zionist movement did employ colonialist tools and colonial frameworks and certainly colonialist language when trying to do the Zionist era equivalent of Hasbara, meaning when Herzl or Jabotinsky or others were trying to appeal to the governments of Western Europe and gain support for this project of bringing the Jewish people home, they used very colonialist language. Uh, that's, of course, being thrown in the faces of the Hasbara community today that's trying to employ this indigenous language. Uh, but it's also important to note that Zionism itself, uh, you know, as complicated as the Jewish people are, Zionism is complicated. Uh, Zionism wasn't our first attempt to bring us home. There were several Jewish liberation movements beforehand that had failed. Zionism is really just another link in the chain, uh, but a link that succeeded. And maybe it succeeded because it utilized colonial tactics. I don't know. But I would certainly say at this point, we should be able to acknowledge the colonial features of Zionism, uh, while at the same time understanding our own identity and connection to this land. Um, and, and of course, I, I think one of the major differences is that when you and I talk about Jewish indigeneity, it's not done in such a way to claim rights. It's to understand our identities, to express our identities, to actually decolonize our identities, to really contextualize who we are in a framework that people understand today uh, for ourselves and for others. And I think the indigenous discourse is actually very valuable internally because it helps us to desire decolonization and it helps us to ask questions about ourselves and return to ourselves. It's really an instrument of tshuva. But I think that where it falls short is when it's employed in order to claim rights uh, like political rights or to justify things the state of Israel or the Zionist movement has done. Um, most people who care about indigenous rights and show up for indigenous causes are people who are really showing up because indigeneity today implies some kind of power relationship. Uh, whereas there's like a pre-colonial population victimized by an act of colonization and excluded from the structures established by the colonizers. Uh, now that's not us today, that's not our situation. Uh, we can say we're connected to this land, we're from this land, we're of this land, we've been struggling for roughly 2,000 years to come back to this land, but that doesn't mean we currently uh, are experiencing what indigenous peoples around the world are experiencing in terms of being excluded from a colonial structure set up on a land that we were in before.
No, 100%. And indigeneity is really a responsibility more than it is a way to claim rights. We have a responsibility to keep our land free of colonialism. And the irony is that the Zionist movement itself is a product of the colonization of our people. And so it's just, there's, there's just a real irony in pro-Israel advocates posting, you know, decolonize and but at the same time supporting Zionism as it was. Right. Like I think at this point, Jewish decolonization actually requires us to shed the colonial features of Zionism or of the state of Israel or of Israeli society. Like that is essentially at least part of what Jewish decolonization means today, to acknowledge the colonial features of the Zionist project and the state of Israel and to work towards dismantling them. <laughs> I mean, that's part of tshuva. That's part of returning to ourselves, right? Like we didn't come back to our land to be colonizers. And I think that you know, I, I, maybe maybe it's a good idea to directly address this comic strip that appeared in uh, Jewish Currents the other day, which I think really slapped the Hasbra adoption of indigenous language. It was drawn by J.B. Bragger in Jewish Currents, and it pokes fun at a lot of people that we know. Uh, doesn't talk about us, which was nice. Maybe they do acknowledge, hopefully, I'd like to think they acknowledge that we're something different, that we're not using indigeneity as a utilitarian Hasbara talking point, but actually means something very real and very deep. I'd like to think that's why we were left out of this, because I know they know who we are, and they specifically didn't take any shots at us. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think we should acknowledge the things that they said, because I think that although this comic strip had a lot of good points, about the shallow indigeneity discourse that currently exists in Hasbara spaces, they're also missing the Jewish story. Like, I think there are just elements of the Jewish people's story that, you know, either they were ignorant of or denying. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it right now, and um, we don't really talk like a lot of the, um, a lot of what they're making fun of. They're talking about, you know, DNA, and th there is an obsession over DNA. and. I remember in university campuses how, how that was like really laughed at when Jews talked like that and like put pictures of Jews that are not white passing necessarily uh, as like proof that we're not white. Like it's just such a shallow form of activism. And I think that it, it's just begging to be made fun of. Right, right. Uh, what they call the fetishization of dark skinned Jews. Yeah. One reason why we should take this comic strip seriously is because it's really good tochacha. It's good criticism. And I think that the authentic Jewish response to Tochacha is not defensiveness or dismissiveness, but rather introspection, internalization, growth. I think that it's important to differentiate between like Tochacha from uh, that the motivation is growth. And, and I think this would fit into that category. Like this is pushing for a deeper Jewish conversation. And I think we should respond to that call um, without losing our narrative, without losing our story and rather strengthening it. Do you think that's true? Do you think that the people who put out that comic strip are looking for a deeper conversation or were they simply looking to debunk the Jewish indigeneity claim and make a joke out of the Jewish activists making that claim? A lot of it is definitely making fun, but I think ultimately they want, I mean, this is a, a publication that's in many respects deeply Jewish. Um, Jewish Currents. Yeah, 
I mean, it's Jewish currents, right? Like, I, I do believe their goal is to have a deeper Jewish conversation, albeit very divorced from the Jewish story, um, which is what we need to respond to. Um, so I, I would say this, I would say regardless of whether or not the criticism is coming from a genuine desire to help people go deeper or the criticism is coming just from a desire to completely debunk these Hasbara claims, I would still say that the decolonized Jewish approach to this criticism is to at least as a first step internalize and ask ourselves what divine message is Hashem sending us through this criticism? How can we use this to grow? And that doesn't mean we don't respond or debunk in return, but I think that the real, like, quote-unquote, decolonized Jewish approach is really introspection. Yeah, and you can see the colonization in the discourse following the article immediately after its publication, and just a complete refutation and look at this garbage and, you know, stuff like that without really... Unfortunately, all of the pieces I saw from pro-Israel advocates who use the indigeneity discourse responding to that comic strip showed that they didn't really get the criticism. They didn't internalize the criticism. There was no introspection. They're just looking to hit back. Yeah. Well, they were hit, right? Right. And yes, it's true. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of young activists in pro-Israel spaces talking about decolonized Judean. And yes, the revival of the Hebrew language was, of course, an act of decolonization, returning to the language that our ancestors spoke before our civilization was destroyed by the Roman Empire, uh, returning to our land, you know, taking possession of our land. Those are all acts of decolonization, no question. But we've already done that. The Zionist movement did that. And the Zionist movement also used a lot of colonial tools in the process that hurt another people that definitely fits the definition of an indigenous people according to how that's more commonly used in the world today, especially in activist spaces. But instead of talking about the things that were done that were acts of Jewish decolonization, we should really be focused on what needs to happen that would be examples of Jewish decolonization today. Like, uh, for example, thinking about what kind of structures, you know, what kind of policies and structures make a state Jewish, or thinking about whether or not we should be aligned with the oppressors of the world or the oppressed, or thinking about how we live in our land, how we handle issues of security, or questions of identity more broadly. Because what I find happening in the Hasbara indigeneity discourse is the same pro-Israel voices who talk about Jewish indigeneity also seem to be viewing Western civilization and its values as superior to our own civilization or the values of our ancestors. Yeah, I, I come across that all the time. I, I think the difference between us and the, everyone else who uses the decolonization uh, and indigeneity language is that for them, that's sort of an event that happened. We decolonized. Great. End of story. Whereas I think we're constantly decolonizing and constantly asking the questions and writing the chapters of Jewish history, um, whereas they're just telling it in a new language. Right. And, and I think that rather than being an argument for why Israel's justified in treating the Palestinians the way we do, I think that our understanding of decolonization really seeks to dismantle those oppressive structures or colonial features of the state of Israel in order to end the oppression of Palestinians. Yeah, for us, that has to, it's a ramification of indigeneity. 
Right. Like if we acknowledge we're indigenous, then we want to indigenize. Meaning for us, there's actually a value, for me at least, decolonization means tshuva. It means coming back to your identity, yeah. expressing your, your true self in uh, the way you live. And I think that if we were to really think deeply about what Jewish decolonization means right now in the post-Zionist chapter of Jewish history, then that would require us to really challenge a lot of the most oppressive features of the state of Israel today. Yeah, and we talk about decolonization as though it's a new uh, term, but really our, our sages have talked about tshuva and how national tshuva would look, and, and we're really living that chapter now. Right. Look, it's a, it's a very complicated conversation. You know, on uh, a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a piece for Vision Magazine, The Challenge of Jewish Indigeneity, where I really tried to explain, obviously the piece is directed towards people in the Hasbro community using this language, but trying to really explain why this isn't a Hasbro argument. It has to be an identity we internalize. And I think, I think we should do well to acknowledge the colonial features of, of the Zionist movement, you know, that, that's not so difficult for us because I think in the vision movement, we we anyway identify much more with the ideological and political legacy of the Lehi, the, the Stern Group, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, which was not really Zionist and actually at that time, the 1940s, was critiquing the colonial features of Zionism uh, and mm -hmm. was speaking more as like an indigenous people's liberation movement. And upholding the legacy of Lehi today doesn't mean, you know, that, that we're advocating for the same tactics. Uh, in fact, the opposite. We're saying that at that time when Lehi existed, at that stage in our people's revolution, in our people's movement towards decolonization, armed struggle was necessary. Armed struggle was necessary in order to free our land from British rule. But once the British rule ended and a Jewish state was established, the conversation needed to shift. And I think one of the historic tragedies was that Lehi split, you know, some of them wanted to start an educational movement within Israeli society and some wanted to create a political party. I'm of the opinion both should have been fully supported and fully actualized because, you know, once independence is achieved, the revolution isn't over. And I think a lot of the work we're doing today at the Vision Movement is trying to really figure out, well, okay, like what are the next stages of our revolution after the achievement of a Jewish state? Like, is the state of Israel the goal of our revolution or is it really just a tool with which to achieve the goals of our revolution? And I think that uh, we're now at a point in our historic development where the nation of Israel might be a lot more ready for these radical ideas than they were in 1948, just after the war against the British. There's a quote from Hannah Arendt where she says that the day after the revolution, the most radical revolutionary will be a conservative. And once the revolution's successful, everyone sort of rests on their laurels and let, you know, mm -hmm. we achieved our revolution, we're, we're done here. And so everyone sort of becomes docile and uh -huh. stops, stops, you know, fighting for further justice. And now we're, we're at a point where that's starting to be challenged. And I think we're sort of getting to the point now where we can, that's starting to change. Right. And I, I think we can see by the way that um, the state of Israel has developed, the way the Jewish people have developed since 1948, and the way our critics call us out and the claims that they make against us, it's very clear that our revolution needs to continue, that this isn't over, that the Zionist stage of our revolution is not the final stage. 
and we need to really think about what comes next. That's why we are so committed to really educating a new generation of leaders to identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish history, to really formulate a new Jewish liberation ideology that can work towards the identification and attainment of the next objectives of Jewish history. <laughs> so how would you see that play out, like, for example, in Toronto, both as an educator and as a campus activist, can you share any success stories, either in pro-Israel spaces or pro-Palestinian spaces, where, you know, you've had conversations surrounding question of Jewish indigeneity that, that were productive, that, that were actually deep and meaningful and not what we're critiquing. Right. I, I would say definitely more before this became so mainstream that those conversations were more effective, even within the pro-Israel community, because it was just there was sort of a shock value to it, um, which is, was obviously not the point. But I, I guess one of the one of the big ones is that we were able to get Hillel to have a week, Jewish History Week. And um, and one of the main talking points, unfortunately, but uh, but it, it was a, it wasn't so bad. It was it was pretty good. Was Jewish indigeneity, and I was at the table, so that that didn't stop at the word indigenous. We were very much talking about that ramifications of indigeneity, and we were just tabling on campus, talking to people. I think there were some Jews on the left who sort of had read from other activists about Jewish indigeneity, and so they were they were pouncing on it a little bit, but. Everyone else seemed to be very open to it. Uh -huh. And yeah. so the, the question then becomes, now what do we do? Because we, we're in a situation where the Hasbara community has, for the most part, adopted this language, not only indigeneity, but also decolonization. I don't know if they're really defining it or how they're defining it, but it, it sounds to me like it's like, honestly, it, it comes across as shallow. It, you know, it, it hits my ears as very shallow for two reasons. I'm not sure that the people using this language, A, understand that discourse, like understand anything about post-colonial studies or, mm -hmm. you know, indigenous issues outside of claiming Jews are indigenous in order to win the argument against Palestinians. That's one reason why I think it sounds shallow to me. The other reason is because I don't see these activists as all that decolonized or all that interested in real decolonization. When I've had conversations with a lot of these people, it still sounds like they're very far removed from our people's authentic worldview, from the way our ancestors understood the world, understood the values that we held. I still am encountering, you know, very westernized, very colonized Jews who just happen to really like the state of Israel and are trying to defend it with this indigeneity claim or this decolonization claim without understanding anything about either what a post-colonial Jewish identity might mean, without any interest in what a post-colonial Jewish identity might mean, or any understanding of the post-colonial discourse more broadly. So I think that's problematic, but at the same time, I think there's a silver lining that we have to acknowledge. I think the positive of all this is that suddenly you have a generation of young Jews who do identify with Israel actually using these words, I think, you know, language is not only language, language has ramifications. And the fact that so many young pro-Israel Jews are suddenly talking about indigeneity and decolonization, in my opinion, has also made the landscape more fertile for the deeper conversations, meaning our work, the educational work that we try to do in terms of reaching young Jews and helping them figure out 
what decolonization really means and helping them kind of go deeper into their own identities and to want to become meaningful, active characters in their own people's story. I think in that regards, the co-option of this language by the Hasbro community has actually been somewhat positive because now there are many more people who are ready for our message, you know, in pro-Israel spaces. So that's good. Yeah. So from, from the perspective of telling Israel's story to the outside, I think it's been a disaster and it's actually complicated the work that you and I have been doing. But internally, in terms of educating young Jews, and moving them closer to real decolonization, I have to say it's positive because five years ago, they didn't even know what decolonization meant or indigeneity meant. Uh, and maybe they still don't fully know what these words mean, but at least they're curious, at least they're interested, at least they're not laughing you out of the room. Yeah, I, even though there are uh, Jews now who talk about indigeneity, but would have also supported the Iraq war, I think it's still the fact that we're, they're talking about indigeneity shows the strength of the vision movement. And uh, I think that's sort of where the answer is. If we are able to, you know, sort of articulate and create the next movement that will take us from the Zionist era to the next stage of Jewish liberation, I think many, many Jews who talk about indigeneity will follow along and they'll be thought leaders in that movement as well. So I guess my big question at this point, where the Hasbro community has hijacked this language, I, and I know it's difficult, it's frustrating for you, it's frustrating for me, and it's frustrating for almost everybody at Vision. But the question is, what do we do? Because being frustrated isn't a strategy. You know, we, we have to decide, how are we going to use this ultimately? Like, how, how are we going to use this in order to advance our agenda? Because that's how revolutionaries think. So if our agenda is genuine Jewish decolonization, then the question is, well, what do we do? Obviously, I think we should be engaging all of those young Jews who are suddenly speaking in this language, even if they don't fully understand what they're saying, even if it's shallow, we need to be there in order to help them deepen it. Those who can't, like, let's also acknowledge not everybody can, you know, not everybody is going to fully understand this stuff. For some people, it's only going to be shallow Hasbara. That's what they want. That's what they're looking for. And they're not looking to go deeper. But, but I do believe that there's a good percentage of young pro-Israel Jews who are genuinely interested in going deeper and would like to explore these questions. So we definitely need to be there for them. And we can also appreciate the fact that to a certain extent, we can say that aspects of our message have been dumbed down and more widely disseminated among the next generation of Jews. Uh, the problem for me is that it's not exactly our message and it's kind of been tainted or mm -hmm. distorted to a certain extent, but that's been done. You know, that that's our situation today. So that being the case, what can we do? Like, do we promote voices that kind of get it wrong, but are able to spread this message wide? Or, you know, do we come out against them? Do we do we attack them? Do we join in the criticism? Uh, be, because at the end of the day, when I look at the Jewish Currents comic strip, I identify with a lot of its critiques. Like I see, mm -hmm. like, yeah, like they're pointing out things that have been frustrating me for years. Uh, yet at the same time, when I finish the comic strip, I'm also frustrated by the fact that the people who produced it and the people who are criticizing the Hasbara community are just totally disconnected from the story of the Jewish people as we've understood that story for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, they ultimately consolidate those activists who talk about indigeneity in a more shallow lens with the Jewish story. 
And so the rejection of the pro-Israel community is, in a way, uh, the rejection of the Jewish story for, for this comic strip, I find. Uh, but, but it is a challenge. It's a challenge that we always have in, in terms of even, even just when we talk about dumbing down our message so that it's more accessible, there's a huge problem with that. And so that's been the challenge of the vision movement, I find. But I think it's open doors. It's open doors for many people so that we can speak on more campuses, I think. Right. It has opened more doors for us in the Jewish world. Although I'm not even sure, the irony is I'm not sure how much of the pro-Israel community that's adopted this language even credit us with being the first to kind of push these ideas. Uh, and certainly not with pushing them on a deeper level. No, but at the same time, if you if you went to an event now, if you hosted an event on campus, you know, in pro-Israel spaces about Jewish indigeneity, you're not laughed out of the room off the bat. So now you're left out of the room in all others. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's completely reversed. Yeah. yeah. So maybe the best thing for us to do is really try to work with those who are pushing this message, even if it's shallow and even if it's not even if it's not exactly what we think it should be, or not necessarily moving people in the direction we think they should be moved in, mm -hmm. maybe we should work with them in order to ensure that we are the next step of the educational process. That those who are really genuinely interested in Jewish decolonization will quickly and easily find us. Yeah, and, and I think uh, we can definitely deepen a lot of uh, the pro-Israel community. Uh, we can deepen their understanding of indigeneity and Jewish identity. Um, at the same time, I think we can talk to, to the activist community um, by talking about movements beyond Zionism and what the Jewish people have for the world. Or even what we understand decolonization to mean, meaning if it's very clear, um, and I think, by the way, it has been. I, I've seen over the years things that, and this might be one of the reasons we were left out of the comic strip, is people in kind of these like left-wing Jewish spaces uh, mm -hmm. have acknowledged that we are not talking about indigeneity as a Hasbro talking point. We're looking at it as a real identity to internalize. We're interested in Jewish indigenization back into the Semitic region, uh, an embrace of what we share in common with our neighbors, you know, and, and certainly a critique of empire, you know, part of decolonization for us. It's not just freeing our country from the British, but also freeing our state from American domination today. Like we want Israel to be independent, not a vassal of the United States. Yeah. So I think when we talk about decolonization and we talk about, you know, reconciliation with the Palestinians, a focus on what we share with our neighbors, as opposed to, you know, what we share with Western civilization, uh, an aspiration towards freedom from U.S. control, uh, the decolonization of Jewish identity in a very real way. You know, I think those things are understood to be genuine and aren't dismissed as just like shallow pro-Israel talking points. Yeah, I think it is appreciated for the most part. People appreciate the difference. Right, when they're aware of the difference. Those who are yeah. willing to take the time to actually listen and understand that there is a difference. Yeah, for sure. So uh, do you want to share with our listeners anything uh, that you're currently working on? or? You can find my work mostly on the vision uh, visionmag.org. That's mostly where I'm writing these days. Mm -hmm. And if you are in Canada, then you should definitely reach out because uh, there's some exciting things for the vision chapter in Canada on the horizon, and we're really excited about it. Right. One thing we did not mention is that you're one of the main organizers of the vision movement in the Toronto area. 
Yeah, yeah. And that there's going to be lots of opportunities uh, for leadership within that when I make Aliyah, Beskat Hashem. Right. So you're going to be leaving quite a void uh, that we're going to need uh, new leadership to fill. Hit us up. <laughs> okay. So the, the easiest way to get in touch with any of us is probably just going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. And, yeah, please do. And if you want to get in touch with Shai, you know, in terms of getting involved in our movement in Toronto, we can definitely pass your message along. And if you're here in Israel and want to get involved, also a great way to do it, visionmag.org, contact on the menu bar up top. So um, as I mentioned before, the 15th of Marcheshvan is the yurt site of Matityao Ben Yochanan Chashmonai. So this episode of the Next Stage podcast is Lilui Nishmat, is right for the elevation of the soul of Matatiao ben Yochanan. Uh, Shai, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for being with me. It was a pleasure. I encourage listeners to check out your articles at visionmag.org. And anyone in the Toronto area who wants to get involved, I encourage you to reach out, get involved. We'll put you in touch with Shai, and you can help build what we're building over there. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you want to check out the show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 62.